from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. An unusual event. Target USA, recorded before a live audience. We were with former CIA and FBI Deputy Director Philip Mudd discussing his new book, Black Sight, at Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C. When the towers fell on September 11, 2001, nowhere were the reverberations more powerfully felt than at CIA headquarters in Langley. Almost overnight, the intelligence organization evolved into a war-fighting intelligence service, constructing what was known internally as the program. We weren't prepared for what happened. We were an organization dedicated to recruiting people to be traitors to their organization or their country. Having those people talk to us about what was happening in places like China and Russia. And all of a sudden, somebody said, maybe we actually have to detain prisoners and conduct aggressive interrogations. The book is called Black Sight, the CIA in the post 9-11 world, a Target USA episode recorded before a live audience. Coming up on this edition of Target USA, the National Security Podcast from WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. This was an unprecedented event for Target USA. It was the first time we've recorded a podcast before a live audience. It took place at Washington, D.C.'s Politics and Prose. In addition to an interview of former CIA and FBI executive Philip Mudd about his book, Black Sight, we took questions from the audience. This hard-hitting interview had light moments, but it was peppered with difficult questions about the audience, prompting tense moments. I interviewed Mudd about the hours, days, and months, and years after the 9-11 attacks and some of the decisions the CIA made to try to extract information from people it believed could lead them to the perpetrators of the attacks. We'll get to the light moments soon enough. But I want to start this podcast off actually by going to the end or near the end to some of the questions, to one of the questions that was asked to give you an idea of just what the scene was like in this interview. One last question. You, you mentioned legality. Hitler always said everything I'm doing, we're doing is legal. Sir, I, I'm sorry. We didn't kill five million people. Next question. That exchange makes it very clear that almost 20 years after 9-11, people are still upset about some of the things that were done in the haze of trying to figure out what happened and to hold those responsible accountable. But to the beginning of the interview, this is how it all started. Now please join me in welcoming Philip Mudd and J.J. Green. Hello, everyone. How are you? 
When I told Philip that the place was packed, he was like, really? I'm like, come on, man, what do you think? There's only so many muds in the world. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But um, thank you for coming. Um, Phil's going to tell you himself that. But first, I would just like to say we have been plotting this for more than a decade. Honestly, um, about 10 years ago, you know, I, I had met Phil through my work uh, covering the 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 war on terror and a lot of related uh, situations. Philip at the time was sort of in the middle of some of this, but uh, we met, did a couple of interviews on the phone and in, in, in other venues as well. And Philip said, you know, we ought to take this show on the road. And I said, yeah, let's do it, man. But then CNN got word of it and he said, sorry, buddy, we got way better journalists than you. So we're going to take this puppy. So they did. And it took a good while to convince Phil that I could still kind of bring some value to the program. <laughs> but no, seriously speaking, um, this is one of the great honors of my career because I don't do this at all very often. And um, and, and it's not that there aren't opportunities, but the thing is, it's the person that's in, involved in this that really makes this work for me. Philip Mudd is one of the few people that any of us will ever meet that has both the knowledge and the execution of language to explain some very complex things that exist all around us and, and help us to understand things that are clear but we simply don't get it because we don't know the intricacies of it. Philip Mudd is the kind of person who can make that happen and he can make it fun at the same time. So that's my little thing tonight. I'm just really happy to be sitting here with this guy. I'm, I'm the stunt guy. He's the real deal. I'm just here for the, for the comedy, I guess. Just a quick comment. I, I'm, uh, thanks for doing this, JJ. <laughs> I, um, if I drove up to the front gate of the CIA and in 1984 because I couldn't find a job. <laughs> uh, I'm not kidding, I had a graduate degree in English literature. And uh, if you had told me 35 years later that you would join us at Politics and Prose, I would say, I don't know what I would have said. <laughs> I just needed a job because I had applied to about 35 high schools uh, to, to try to teach English literature to high school students and they all rejected me. Um, I just, thanks for coming. Thank you. Anyway, are we done yet? We're, let's get the show on the road. So the book is called Black Sight, and Philip's written other books, other material. This is a very compelling piece of literature. And uh, in, in all seriousness, I'd like to get started by asking Philip to tell us in his own words what Black Sight is about. I've got a list of questions that I want to go through, but uh, you're the stars here tonight, you and Phil. We want to hear from you. My, my job, my, my objective here tonight is to be a traffic cop. I used to work for C-SPAN years ago, and I used to be the guy on Saturday morning that did the Washington Journal. And they made it very clear to me then, you are only here to direct traffic. I got it. I get it. I got it now. So I want Phil to explain what the book's about. I'm going to ask him some questions. Then it's all yours. A simple proposition. Um, I live in Memphis part-time. I was running one morning wondering, I like to write, wondering if I should write another book. And a couple things came together. I realized that a lot of the people I worked with in the counterterrorism world at CIA during the most eventful time 
in the CIA's history, um, wouldn't speak about what happened there. And I realized that it might not be a significant portion of American history, but it was the, the tensest time in American intelligence history. So the bottom line was I thought for people like you, maybe I can help you step back to 2002 and beyond, and, and actually the book starts before 2002, and, and help you understand whether you appreciate or like what we did or not. Help you stand in shoes and say, boy, I'm driving this car in 2002 and 2003 and 2005. This is why they made the decisions. I can sort of live it. I can still judge, if you're you, that what they did wasn't acceptable to me, or maybe it is, but at least you can live it. So I wanted to interview my friends, again, many of whom wouldn't speak to CNN, unfortunately, uh, and or, tell or, the story of what me. it was like. <laughs> they would never speak to you. <laughs> no. See, I told you it was funny. Anyway, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, no, that was it. I just wanted to have people like you take a step back into a chapter in American history and CIA history that will be lost if I didn't capture what my friends said. So I went, I spent about a year talking to a bunch of them and uh, saying, I'm going to record this. Talk to me. And they're pretty honest. You'll notice if you read it, the book is anonymous. So I, I kept their names out of it. But it's the story of what we did and what we saw and why we did it. Philip, you know, you've already kind of answered the question why you wrote this book, but if you have some more that you want to add uh, about your decision to write the book, because clearly it's not something, as you say, people want to talk about, even this far afterwards. But also I'd like to know, of all those conversations you had and of all of the experiences you had, what surprised you the most that you heard from your friends? I mean, I, I, I wrote the book, one of the reasons is personal. My mom, for all of you who are out in the, in the teaching world, my mom was a teacher. She had five kids. She used to sit at the head of the table when we were having dinner, 5.30 every night, and read us stories when we were five years old, six years. And so I grew, we were, when we went to the library, I grew up in Coral Gables, Florida, South Miami, on Wednesday evenings, it was like the movies. My mom taught us that, that books were a way to live a different way. It was like going to a movie. And I still love words. I still love, I drink an unfortunate amount of wine. I still love uh, sitting in cafes saying, how do I capture this idea that I heard from my friends when I did, was interviewing for this book into a page? What are the right verbs? The other piece is, is not quite as positive. Uh, many of us, including myself personally, have been attacked. Most of my friends and I have not spoken that much. The book is not a defense if you read it. There's some ugliness in there about mistakes we made. But I thought, at least in my tiny little sliver, that we should speak. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons I wrote it. So what surprised you the most about what they said to you? when you Give us one of the key questions that you asked to help you get a good sense of what they were thinking about this critical period and the things that took place. I mean, the title of the book itself, Black Sight, yeah. to many people, it raises a whole boatload of questions. So uh, give us a sense of what some of the critical questions were that you asked them and the, the uh, perhaps the most surprising answer. There was only, and I'll leave this to the end of a quick answer, only one surprise. The, the, I tip, you know, beyond the historical questions, where were you when, what did you do? I always ask questions about ethics, about morals, about why, and then about not only what you thought about the appropriateness of what we did, but also when you're looking back, and these interviews typically would have been six, 2016 or 2017, what do you think today? 
the the surprise i guess there weren't many surprises because the book is written in third person all of us are at a bookstore it was written that way i experienced a lot of what's in the book but going back between first person and third person seemed to me to be confusing so i witnessed a lot in the book but i, I can't say i we they it's very so it all says they so my point is there weren't many surprises because i was there one would be consistency there were not many outliers. When I asked questions about what did you think, what did you feel, certain were more articulate. Um, but I was a little surprised that I didn't have to herd cats in terms of writing a narrative that had to reflect two or three different perspectives. They were pretty pers uh, consistent in how they thought about what we did and what they thought about it, including the ethics. Mm. Did you do anything wrong? Was there anything wrong about what was done and uh, the activities that took place in this era. Um, this was 18 years ago, yeah. you know, and people thought differently. Um, I can recall on the day of the attack, many people were, were just so blown away by what had taken place that we simply went home and put up American flags uh, and, 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 you know, just went from there. So I, I can only imagine in the environment that you were in, which, you know, was a protective environment. You had to figure out what to do next. Um, give us a sense of what was going on that day. And, and, and did you do anything wrong in the haze of what was going on at that point? Uh, the, that's not a word I would use, not because I'm afraid of it, because, but because if you want to step back, as the book does, step back in time. When the CIA captures its first prisoner, I remember the night he was captured, Abu Zubaydah. And we had to tell the, the director of the CIA used to see the president, President Bush, every morning. And my responsibility was uh, with my supervisor in determining what the president should see and how we should explain what was happening to the president. We struggled to explain the significance of the capture. Mm -hmm. It was about 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock or 6 o'clock at night. The way the process at that point, I don't know how it works today, for the president works, by about uh, 1 or 2 a.m., you better have some camera-ready product for the president because somebody's going to walk in as early as 7. You've got to have it on a printed piece of paper. So just in terms of the logistics, you don't have forever to sit around and say, hey, what are we going to tell the president? We didn't have a good understanding of the significance of that takedown. My point is we weren't prepared for what happened. We were an organization dedicated to recruiting people to be traitors to their organization or their country having those people talk to us about what was happening in places like China and Russia. And all of a sudden, somebody said, maybe we actually have to detain prisoners and conduct aggressive interrogations. Uh, some things we should have done differently would have been, how do we plan this better from day one? How do we develop a management process that's more consistent, better written down in terms of policies and procedures from day one? But it would be asking politics and pros, you just uh, put a gas station out front, why wasn't it perfect from day one? And I think the answer would be, we don't really right. do gas stations. We learned, a so there was a lot of learning along the way. R I'm not sure wrong, but and I'm sure a lot of the managers, and they told me this, would have said the first days were rough and then we learned. I asked that question because a lot of people have criticized what the agency did, what the intelligence community did. And one of the people that spoke fairly assertively to me about that was General Michael Hayden a couple of years ago. He said to me on that day during that time, a lot of people on the Hill were asking us, okay, so what are you going to do? How are you going to handle this? Then 
later when the whole hubbub regarding enhanced interrogation came up, it was the intelligence community on the hot seat and he and I'm assuming you and a lot of other people felt betrayed to some degree um, because you were doing what you thought was necessary or at least were asked to do at the time and people on the Hill knew that. Go ahead. You have no, I th I'm not angry. I lost my career over this program. I was not. I'd never visited a black site. I never interrogated a prisoner, but I was the deputy director of counterterrorism when we had prisoners. And I won't get into the details, but I had to leave government in 2010 because I didn't think I would, had a future. Uh, I was supposed to go through a Senate confirmation process, and the Senate was going to say, we are going to nail your head to a wall based on what you knew about interrogations. So, I mean, I have a personal experience with this, but I think the way I would characterize it, and, and the one of the reasons I wrote the book is people are, well, it's a free country. People are welcome, and they do occasionally write to me, I have a website, and say, I hate you. I don't like it when they add, and you should die. <laughs> like, well, I will, but it won't be today, hopefully. Uh, the number of people, which is a, this is an aside, but the violence of correspondence in this country sort of echoes what you're seeing in the public sphere. People write that it's not hurtful to me. I don't care, but incredible stuff every day. But my point is people on either side of the spectrum are welcome to say, I hate what you did. I, I think that's, and I'm sure there's some people in this room who think that, which is, it's a free country. My goal was to say, that's okay. The challenge for somebody who's 17 today or 25 or 35 is to say, why did you do that? And what was it like? when you first said, we're gonna take this dramatic step of not only detaining our own prisoners, the CIA is not like the Bureau of Prisons, but also subjecting them to interrogations that we knew people would judge later. Mm -hmm. It's okay to judge, it's not okay to say, judgment today doesn't look through the lens of what it was like 17 years ago. It was incredible. How did the CIA go from what its core competency was before 9-11 to this organization that was running this operation that you're talking about. Is there anybody in here that doesn't know what waterboarding is? Okay, so I just want to make sure we're... That's depressing. I <laughs> just want to make sure we're talking to, the, you know, everybody's on board with us. But how did the CIA go from doing its usual business before 9-11 took place to what it was doing you know, in this, in this world after 9-11? That's an interesting question. For all of you who run complex organizations, I occasionally do business consulting, basically, you know, how do you think about complex problems in difficult circumstances? First, you have an organization that has an ethos, a psychology that says, we'll do it. It's not, the CIA is flat. It's not very good on bureaucracy. It's not very good on chain of command. It's very good on agility. The talent there, I thought, was excellent. So, so if you have that as your overarching uh, plus, not uh, obviously, the 9-11 environment. Don't ever let this happen again. If it happens again, it's on you. In addition to the environment in the country after 9-11, you have a psycho an organizational psychology. Every organization has its own psychologies. That is, do it. If you don't know how to do it, figure it out. Then you go into the spring of 02, going into the summer of 02, and people saying, we have one of the significant, maybe top 20 players in Al-Qaeda. And his answer is, why don't you go home, Mr. Interrogator, with your wife and have some babies, because I'm never talking again. That's what Abu Zubaydah said. Yeah. So in that environment, with that comment from, a CIA, from the first major CIA captive, people stepped back and said, well, 
we can either just let them sit there or we can take we did have some internal capability with people who had been been around the military for years and understanding how we practice interrogations on our own military officers why don't we take that and reverse engineer it you got to put that all in sort of a soup and, and, and say, okay, that environment, that kind of organizational psychology. And then they said, well, if these guys won't talk, we're going to move fast. We're going to move flexible. We have some people who understand how to reverse engineer interrogations. We're going to do it. It was very fast. Yeah, interesting. It seemed like things were moving in slow motion at the time for, for most of us as the, the search for the perpetrators went on. But you were, 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 were there in the midst of all of it. Um, um, so we're seeing some semblances of some of this come back, at least the, the terrorist activity come back. And, and, you know, in the few years we saw ISIS very active, we saw them do some horrible things too. And a lot of people said, well, maybe what they were doing, the enhanced interrogation or the, all of the tactics weren't, weren't so bad. So, so what do you say to folks who might approach you and say, you know, why don't we go back to that, considering, you know, wh what some of the threats are out there now? That's not going to happen. I see the public debate, which is typically by people who weren't involved in the program, and they don't know what they're talking about. The, the reason is not that people like me... You know, I grew up playing Little League. I am you. And one of the challenges I have, one of the frustrations I have is that people who don't like what we did in the public, again, which is fine. It's a free country. Somehow think that we're a separate category of Neanderthals. Sure. We did the best we could with pair of, two, with pair of twos. Um, I look at that question about whether we would go back to that again. And I said, look, I'm not going to, I don't apologize for what I witnessed some of what I participated in 17 16 15 years ago but what I would say is America has spoken in some ways in ugly and aggressive ways including through the Congress of the United States and what they said is some of you people might be subject to legal censure and a lot of you people did things that don't respect American values if you're leading an organization and you an organization that has gone through that kind of visceral period if somebody asks you, why don't you do that again, I think your answer would be, it's not that I think what we did at the, in, in the heat of the moment was wrong. I cannot subject the workforce to be judged again in five years or 10 years when people say, ah, maybe I'm a little nervous about that now. Maybe you guys did things I don't like. I can't put the workforce at risk. Mm -hmm. I don't think my, I'm not sure this is universal. I think most of my peers would say, I would never sign up to that again. And that's typically interpreted to mean we are regretful of what we did. What it means instead is we cannot put the workforce in the future at that kind of risk. We, I mean, I'm not in a leadership position anymore. So I've, I've heard the president talk about this. When I commented on CNN, I'm like, he can say whatever he wants. Bring your own bucket. That's not going to happen. So what do you say to the folks who say what you and your colleagues did tarnished the U.S., tarnished the reputation, tarnished what America stands for? There is a demographic out there that, that I've heard say that. So what do you say to those people who confront you with that? I think it's a, it's a criticism. If, as long as it comes, and, and this happened at the beginning when we were introducing this conversation today, as long as it comes courteously, sometimes it's so angry, like you, need, can, you need to settle down, have a cocktail, and then you can ask the question. I, I think it's a legitimate question. My answer would be step back, as the book does, to the time, and ask yourself a couple, one question, which would be, are you certain that you would not have done 
the same thing. Are you certain? I think sometimes people are too confident in saying, I know what I would have done. The other thing I would tell them is, look, the country has had a chance to have a national conversation by 2019. We, we did, not only we, did we not have that in 2002, we could not. In an environment where people anticipated a second wave of attacks that it could include anthrax. With the luxury of 17 years, many people, and by the way, polling is still very ambiguous on this. There's limited polling on how people across America think about the interrogation program. Many people, I think, would say with the luxury of time and the fact that the threat has been diminished, that is really important. People don't think that there's going to be a plane that hits a building today. And so they're more comfortable in saying, let me step back and think. With the luxury of time, I think I'd say, you know, I think America doesn't want to be there anymore. And I'm comfortable with that. But please don't tell me that America was in a fundamentally, was in that same place 17 years ago. The, and I did a ton of congressional briefings. The America I was in had Congress people telling me, you do what you need to. Don't ever, ever, ever let that happen again. Very interesting. A um, couple questions personal for you. Uh, uh, no, really. <laughs> you could do it. I mean, I really. Well, how's this experience? Is this vodka or no? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. How's this changed you? How has this whole experience from then till now changed you? Because, yeah, I got the part about you being an all-American kid, and, you know, that's exactly right. But, you know, everybody that was who they were then was different the day after. And certainly the people who were in the heart of that, again, that haze that took place had to be impacted some way. So I'm wondering how were, how are you changed by all that took place then and, and, and all that's taken place since then? Well, that's the first time I've ever gotten that question. Um, that's why you asked me to do this, Phil. Man, do you have another question? <laughs> I do, um, but you want to do this one first. Yeah, this is, that is really tough. I think it might be about 180 degrees different than what you would expect. I think I have more perspective, hmm. more patience, um, I, you know, and I don't want to get too personal. I, I have a long-term girlfriend who's just is the nicest person <laughs> ever. She, I'm serious. She is my lodestar. She helps me be better, like nicer, kinder. I think I'm a better person. Uh, this is really self-absorbed. You asked the question. Well, you know what? Uh, this is really embarrassing. I think actually I'm softer than I was 10 years ago. Yours, I know that for a fact. All right, can we move on? Just now, dealing really? with you as a journalist, I know that. But um, I'm going to kill you after this. Is well, done. <laughs> I'm already dead anyway. <laughs> okay. I'm glad my girlfriend's not watching. She would text me after and say, really? I would just get that. Really? We could take up a collection for her. That, we could There's do that really. not enough money. <laughs> so, um, honestly, back to, back to a serious question. We're going to get to you guys in just a couple of seconds here. You know, some news came out today. Hamza bin Laden. Um, we were hearing today that he's dead and has possibly been dead for a while. And I'm not asking you to make any news and tell us what you don't I know. I don't know, yeah. But I'm interested in what you think. If this is indeed true, how this impacts, one, the war on terror and the people who are perpetrating the terror? Uh, this is one of the most difficult questions that I 
and and my friends and I pondered over time, and I remember thinking about this <coughs> even back in in oh three oh four. I thought we were losing. By the way, I was doing Wait, losing what the losing war, losing the campaign. Yes, really. In 0304, I thought Al Qaeda was winning. I don't. I hope that's not news. I did the uh, uh, week on week off. I did the nightly threat briefings for George Tenet, the CIA director, and the stuff that we were talking about. I don't have that much hair left, but it would make your hair curl. And it was for years. I think in about 0405, I started to think we're starting to win. Um, but when you look at what the the news and this is the son of bin laden uh, and the news is out that he might be or that they think he's dead this is painful and if this never gets not painful you shouldn't be in the business when someone begins to contemplate the murder of innocence by the hundreds or thousands you have a difficult choice and it's the choice we faced every day what do you do People will say you should put in a Delta team to capture them. If you're putting them into hostile territory where they may all die themselves, what then would you say to the family if you say, we could have used a drone against this individual and killed him, and instead we decided to attempt a capture, and 10 American citizens died in that capture? The choice was pretty basic. There is an individual, whether it's Hamza bin Laden or someone else, who's contemplating the murder of hundreds of innocents or more. Do you move or not? Mm -hmm. I'm gonna close by saying I've gotten into some pretty tough debates with people who said you created a lot of extremists by the strikes that you conducted that, that killed terrorists because villagers, people in, in this part of the world came to hate America. And I always go back to the same operational question. When you identify an individual at a specific location and you cannot raid that location and that individual is involved in contemplating the murder of tens or hundreds or thousands of innocents, you can come up with a, with an, with a different answer than I did, but please don't make it soft. Do you want to take him out or not? And if you don't and he succeeds in another 9-11, what would you like to say? I boiled the question down. I used to drive down the GW Parkway. I live in Old Town every day. And I remember, this is really personal, in the, in the early days, seeing the faces of the fallen in the, in the New York Times and realizing how many children would never see their mom and dad again. Boy, was that motivational. So I thought the question was, if we choose not to take out someone like Hamza bin Laden and he succeeds, what do we say? Last thing. You cannot forget that that human being has a soul. A terrorist has a soul. A terrorist has a family. A terrorist has a spouse. You cannot dehumanize the adversary. That's when you need to get out. But you can say, I don't know what to do in that binary question of do we let him go or do we take him out? I just, it is, I still run sometimes in the morning and I, you know, God, was that okay? I don't know. Hmm. I'm not that spiritual, but, you know, once in a blue moon. Anyway, yes, go ahead. Boy, I mean, really, wh how did we get there? Can't we do, you know, Seinfeld or something? We no. could. Wouldn't be very good, but. <laughs> You've been listening to an interview with Philip Mudd, the former deputy director of the CIA Counterterrorism Center and the former deputy director of the FBI. 
National Security Division and the author of the book Black Site, The CIA in the Post-9-11 World, which is what this podcast is all about, an interview. And as you have listened, you could tell very clearly this was a very serious subject to him. And you also noticed that there were humorous moments and moments that were tense and sometimes lighter. But this was what Mudd tried to do, I believe, in the book, is to present that whole topic of CIA uh, behavior and activities after 9-11, and he tried to present it in an open and thoughtful way. Now to the questions, and I'm going to warn you, some of them are pretty intense, some of them are overboard, some of them are quite humorous, but all of them were interesting in their own right. For 50 years, I've known torture is unjustifiable. I've listened to you, and I still know that. Torture cannot be justified, period. Do you have a, is, can you ask a question? I made a statement. If okay, you, do you have a if question? If you have anything else you want to I, add that you think might justify it, I, I'm willing to listen. Torture is not only illegal, it's wrong. It's morally long, it's wrong. It's also against the U.S. Constitution and U.S. federal law. I was going to ask something like that, but in a different way. That's okay. Is okay. enhanced interrogation words, Orwellian words for torture? That's uh, that question I'll take. Here's the, the calculation that you would have. One of the calculations would be, are you subjecting someone to, someone to something that has long-term physical or psychological consequences. That was one of the, and I'm translating the law, I'm not a lawyer. So the popular interpretation of torture is you touch somebody, or you waterboarded them, or you sleep deprived them. That's not what the law says. I agree with your question about whether what we did was appropriate. My answer would be if the Congress doesn't think it's appropriate, they should not have said yes and they should have passed a law that says you cannot do this. Our internal calculation was the law says long-term physical or psychological damage is torture. Sleep deprivation will not, which is uh, like it or not, and, and I'm not saying this is appropriate, I'm just giving you a technical evaluation. Sleep deprivation is extremely effective to break someone down. The legal interpretation of sleep deprivation was that it would not cause long-term physical or psychological damage to someone. So I, I, I understand the Orwellian, I don't take offense, but there- I, we, I didn't mean it to be No, offensive. it's not offense, it's the calculation- I just don't like the term, you know? No, I, I, I actually, as an English major, it's not a great, I, I don't know what the right term is. Enhanced interrogation techniques is not the right term. Yeah. But my point is, if we had gone in saying we want to, I think America tortures people every day. Solitary confinement, if there's not a security reason, we know from psychologists that you will cause long-term psychological, we didn't do that. I'm not saying what we did was nice. I'm not saying, I'm not stupid. I know a lot of Americans don't like it. What I'm saying is there was a calculation that said in the heat of the moment, we are not causing long-term physical or psychological damage. I do not know why in this country, A, we put people in solitary, and B, we let them live on death row for decades. That's torture. And I agree. My, I was following up on his question, but yeah. my real question was, I thought that CIA folks had to put their drafts through the CIA in order to get published. 
And did you get any um, backdraft from the uh, CIA about what you were writing? Um, I'm not joking. Can we talk after? Sure. Where some? Uh, okay. This is not as simple. We don't go on. Want to go on the record with that answer? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Thank you yes. so much for speaking today, and thank you for your service to our country. You're welcome. Um, so my question was, does torture work? Because uh, I have a lot of questions about. Um, like from a practical standpoint, if someone is in the midst of torture, how reliable is their information going to be? Because they're going to say anything to make it stop. Um, so, do you actually get valuable information? Is it uh, is it something that has proved helpful in a, the past? A fair question. By the by the way, I don't object to what you're saying. People in my world, when you use the word torture, we bristle because torture is illegal. So you're asking me if what we if the illegal things we did, we determined they weren't torture. Let's leave that aside. I understand the okay. question. It's fair. Let me, people don't, there's a critical point here, and we can't have this conversation in, on TV because it takes a minute, and we don't have a minute on TV to explain it. Let me give you one fact. You cannot, you cannot aggressively question someone unless you know who they are. If I put you in a room now and aggressively question you and say, where were you last week? You could say Timbuktu. You could say Delray, Virginia. I don't know, so how do I determine whether you're truthful? We weren't naive, everybody lies. People, by the way, who aren't subjected to aggressive techniques, they lie too. The next attack, uh, it's coming from, uh, we planted some missiles on Mars, and they're gonna, you know, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed lied. So let me cut to the chase. If I have a ton of data on you, your travel record, your communications record, your family history, your, your history of who you spoke with and where you appeared in the Al-Qaeda hierarchy, we start down a path. Ma'am, can you talk to me just about where you've been over the past two years? And let's say I know, because at the beginning, <coughs> I don't know whether we called it compliant, not truthful, there's a difference. We can talk about that in a second. There's a difference between compliant and truthful. Nobody's ever gonna tell the full truth. Compliant means you'll answer some questions. Mm. If, you, if we know, and you don't know what I know, it's a hall of mirrors. If we know you've gone to 10 places, and not only do you lay them out, because we used to give the detainees homework. Here's a flexible pen, by the way, flexible pen so you don't kill yourself, and here's a piece of paper. Go write where you've been the past 10 years. You lay it out with dates and they're all accurate, I'm on to something. If you skip one, the lie is as important as the truth. I know you're not compliant, and I know you're trying to hide something. Then we're gonna start to neck it down. Are you sure this is every place you went to? And you're going to start asking yourself because now you're tired. You've been sleep deprived. This is tough stuff. But my point is, I don't want to belabor this. We had the top one-tenth of one percent of Al-Qaeda. And we knew a heck of a lot about them. If we didn't know about them enough to what we call, we used to use the term box them, to mm. box them, you can't, somebody's just going to lie, make stuff up. Not always lie, they're just going to, I'm tired, I'm just going to make stuff. Yeah, there's a threat in Egypt. They're not lying, they're just like, I want out of this. You've got to know enough to box them over time, and especially to box them so that they, they start to say, I've got to tell the truth because I don't quite know what these guys know. They seem to know more than I anticipated, and if I don't tell them the truth, I can't get a lifeline out. We were the lifeline out to more sleep and better food. So you did receive valuable information using- Yes, I think so, okay. yes. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, first of all, Phil, thank you very much for your, uh, your real honest 
and forthright comments on CNN. They're 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 Thank spot you. on. My question is this: one of these days, it's one of the hardest <laughs> jobs I've had. By the way, it's very. I find TV extremely intellectually challenging. It may not look like that. I find it really hard. So a follow up on the lady's question about the benefits of interrogation, whether you want to call it enhanced or torture or whatever. My question is this. If Senator John McCain was sitting here tonight, and I don't know if you ever had the opportunity to talk with him directly. I did not, no. Okay. I but if he was Senate, here, him, yeah. can you give me some hypothetical about his adamant position that any enhanced interrogation absolutely did not produce any benefits whatsoever? And he obviously, as we all know, experienced the height of it. So... How would you yeah. respond to John if he was here? First, he's an American hero. Right. He deserves a right to be heard. Um, I'd, I'd offer a couple comments. I'm, for the first would be to go back to the earlier question. If you're just talking to a random American serviceman and putting him under duress saying, what do you know? If you don't know his history to my, my partner, I don't know how you know whether he's telling the truth or not. Furthermore, again, if you're put in the situation John McCain was, that was a purposeful attempt to do long-term harm to an individual. That was not our, like what we did or not, that was, we went in saying this is a short-term program that's not designed to harm anybody. Long, I know it's ugly, but long-term psychological or physical harm. Um, I think I would also say, Senator, he wouldn't like this, but Senator, we answer to an entire House, an entire Senate. I personally briefed both the House and the Senate on interrogation techniques. Mm -hmm. I didn't get any pushback. I will never speak some of what I listened to those days because I think it's inappropriate. But if there's a suggestion that they sat there and said no or that they didn't know. Now, if they say we didn't know it was 192 times, I'm like, do you want us to come to you for approval for how we actually execute this? Is that, that's not really what the Congress does. I, my point is I would tell them the committees that oversee us were privy to the details of what, they, what we did and they either said okay, nothing, or you should do more. Okay, but Senator McCain was not part he of those. He was not, no, he was, and let me be clear, he was clear, he was not in the oversight committee. Okay. But we spoke with, well not we, I didn't, but the CIA leadership spoke to him because of his experience, right. and he was clearly in the camp. He he said privately what he said publicly. You guys should never do this. This is torture. He said that. That's correct. Okay. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you for being here. Um, I find you interesting in in the ways you deal with the issue of torture, since you were involved in the torture program. As I understand, I haven't read your I book. I looked at the information that okay. came in and evaluated it. I did not go to black sites and oversee interrogations, and I did not pass judgment on what we should do. Why did the CIA outsource the program to James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen? They were paid millions of dollars for, for what they did to design this program. Secondly, um, Gina Haspel, now the CIA director, actually went to the black site of Thailand. And according to records released under Freedom of Information Act, she actually narrated a waterboarding. Um, do you think she's qualified for this job based on that fact? I do. I worked beside her for years. She was one of the best I ever saw. Temperament, judgment, even you'll never see this in public. 
She had a pretty good sense of humor, experience. Uh, I understand I'm familiar, obviously, with the, 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 um, the situation you're talking about in terms of the allegations of what she did overseas, but I can just tell you what I witnessed dealing with her day to day, walking out of meetings, sitting not far from her. Uh, on the issue of the term you use, outsourcing, that for the audience, what, what he's referring to is there are contractors, two in particular, who were involved in helping to develop the interrogation program, including the specific techniques that were used. They were contractors, not staff employees. They were used because they were familiar with how we practiced, how we taught American officers how to resist interrogation. It's called SEER, Surviving uh, Evasion, etc. How do you teach someone if they're captured in a hostile territory and engaged in hostile interrogations to resist? <clears throat> Things were moving so fast that there are not a lot of people who are experienced in that kind of program. They're not experienced in hostile interrogations or experienced in training how to resist them. But I, I think, and I wasn't involved in the question of whether to bring them on to the CIA, in terms of the conversations that people talked to me about, it was a simple conversation. They know how to pe train people to resist this. They can help us develop programs based on what, they, what they're teaching to American officers. One last question. You, you mentioned legality. Hitler always said everything I'm doing, we're doing is legal. Sir, I, I'm sorry. We didn't kill five million people. Next question. I I wanted to <laughs> thank you for your, I wanted to thank uh, really? you. Really? Enough. I want I wanted to thank you for your service. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Um, it was a fun twenty five years not. <laughs> <laughs> people I, it's funny, just I, I I'll add, take your question a moment, but one of the interesting things being I've been on the what, what we call in the CIA on the outside for nine years if people on the inside their world is so small don't you miss it I'm like no well don't you miss it no never I'm making my little latte at 8:30 in the morning at home in my jammies in Old Town no I don't miss it anyway go ahead uh, I just wanted to say that I still feel like we are things are dangerous and we're not safe that's the way I personally feel that's an let, let me give you one simple metric to look for that's a complicated question when you look at Iran or Iraq or Afghanistan or Pakistan or Saudi Arabia or Yemen. Look for, we're better off than we, we didn't understand the adversary 17 years ago. We weren't well trained ourselves and how to collect tactical information about a human being. We didn't have a global network of allies who were, who were not only helping us, but also had the capability to find, how do you find John Doe in, in Indonesia? That was tough, but I agree there's a potential that things will get worse, and I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty half, a glass half full kind of, <coughs> watch for two things. One is leadership in a militant extremist organization that has a global vision. Not somebody who says, we gotta take out the local government, we gotta take out the local police station. Somebody who talks in terms of saying, we need to lead a revolution, the Americans are part of the global opposition. Somebody who has a vision, an ideological vision and the ability to lead an organization. That's the one thing to look for in terms of determining whether we see more threat down the road. The second thing to look for is safe haven. If you find John or Jane Doe in, for example, the Sahel in Africa, and they're starting to say, the head of the snake is Washington, I want to lead a global movement, they've got 2,000 people behind them, and there is not a local capability to hunt them down, 
and sometimes it's local will. Do people want to hunt them down? Those two characteristics, visionary local leadership and lack of local will or capability to hunt people down. I don't, I see a little bit of that in Africa. It's uh, largely gone in Iraq and Syria. There's potential in Yemen. I think there's potential maybe in the future back in Afghanistan. We're not out of the woods yet. Americans don't focus on this now. I think we're in a pretty good place, but what, the numbers are so small. If you decide that you want to train five people to come to New York, that is, and, and they can do obviously tremendous damage. Boy, that is hard to track. I, I agree. We, it's not hard to envision a scenario where things get pretty ugly again quickly. Not yet. That wasn't actually my question. <laughs> Well, that was my answer. Could well, you have I cut me wanted, off earlier? No, I was on a roll. Well, I thought it was interesting information for us, and so I thought, that, boy, this is interesting. I, I need you to listen to You ever watch Animal this. House when, uh, when John Belushi gets on a roll and he starts to say, you know, do you remember when the Germans attacked Pearl Harbor? Harbor? And the guy next to him is like, just let him go. He's on a roll. <laughs> anyway, yes, go ahead. I want to memorize it. I'm going to memorize that speech someday. He still hasn't figured out that he's the, the modern-day version of E.F. Hutton. <laughs> Whatever. My, my question, so in all my reading about 9-11, what happened, what happened, what happened, uh, they, I read that the CIA and the FBI were not necessarily good at cooperating. I think that's we, true. We see that, I mean, I worked in crises, you know, for the government in banking, so I kind of have some sense, but of course it's not half as dangerous or whatever what yeah. they did. But, but, um, but is that better now? I mean, my friend, my one friend who does you know works in this arena we talk occasionally says no really well this is a number of years ago yeah no uh, look let me be clear he makes out up for story. a while and and also have a bias in 2005 director Mueller, he became special counsel asked me to go over to help bridge that gap to go over to, to the fbi there, there and i don't want to be a an apologist but there's a couple things that, that i think have have made it better one is the boring part of bureaucracy. There is more forced joint operational stuff. So in New York, for example, the CIA is going to talk by, and it's not because they always like each other. There, you have to talk more because of the, the things like I don't want to bore you. The Joint Terrorism Task Force. But there's another piece of this that's psychological, uh, and that is when you're faced with threat, and you know, especially after the 9/11 report that if you make a mistake on threat, because I don't want to talk to my FBI guy, people might not, not always be motivated by the best motivators. I really want to do this. But when I was in the business, you do not want to be that person on the stand saying, you know, I didn't like that other bureaucracy, so I declined to pass that piece of information. After 9-11, that became, you, you just, you just can't do that. So I'm not saying they're all great. I'm saying it's just, the risk is too high. So that's what got you over to the FBI. Director Mr. Mueller called one day. Actually, General Michael Hayden, you might know, he's a, he called me out of a meeting one day and said, um, Mr. Mudd, uh, you'll be going over to take over as second in charge of national security at the FBI. And Michael, well, let me think about this. And he was like, um, I don't think you're going to think about this, actually. <laughs> said, okay, I'm on. Okay. We can take. There are two more questions on this side and then one right here. Uh, and then what if I just say no? <laughs> yes, please. 
I appreciate your willingness to talk about values and morals, and uh, I'm sure this has been a, a real challenge for you. I'm remi- I agree I'm, with that. I'm reminded of uh, the book The Legacy of Ashes, uh, Eisenhower's quote for or, or description of his dealing with the CIA when he was in the presidency, and it, it documents horrendous mistakes, one right after the other after the other. And as you pointed out, we made mistakes, uh, and, and we just kept going because our ethos was, we're going to do it. And well, Vietnam's the story of that, yeah. Yeah. Um, another book that comes to mind is Confessions of an Economic Hitman. This is all about empire. This is all about our maintaining supremacy in this empire. Um, and I think that that's an issue that may be coming, may be relevant in terms of what you said uh, uh, when you said, and I thought it was a very interesting st- comment, uh, that back in the time of 9-11, the attitude in America was much different than it is now. And that America, I think your quote was, America doesn't want to be there anymore. Um, and. And yet, Question. we've got Julian Assange uh, being uh, penalized for his his integrity and uh, the me, release. Do you, of, do you have a, a question? We we do need to to close out in just a minute here. Uh, well, I, yes, I do. I, I we're we're now currently we're at the time America doesn't want to be here anymore. Where do we want to be with you guys? I mean, are you going to keep on going to make mistakes because the empire is too important? It's too big to fail. I disagree with the premise of your question. I didn't say the CIA was in a different place 17 years ago or whatever it was 18. I said America was. If you look at polling. Yes, correct. But my point is, and one of the challenges that I have when I speak to audiences is questions like yours are captured in in terms of saying, why did the CIA do this? And like it or not, uh, I think America did this. Uh, The representatives that people voted for told me this is okay. Um, The polling data suggested afterwards, and I'm not not suggesting we just are, are, are sort of slaves to whatever a poll says. If a poll says this, America should do that. But I'm saying the American people had mixed view th- views on this. The White House, the president elected by, by you, knew what we were doing and told us to do it. So I, I think America was challenged. America struggled in a challenge. What I would ask in response to your question is when we get in a crisis situation again, I hope you ask your congresswomen and congressmen and your senators, <laughs> make sure you ask yourself a simple question. When your decision is reviewed in 10 or 20 years, are you going to be as comfortable with it then as you are today? Sit back in the worst crises and have a cup of coffee. That's what I would say. And make sure, by the way, and we're seeing this in the, some of the debates about the current nominee to be director of national intelligence, make sure you have people with enough experience and perspective and humility to say, Let's look at this six ways till Sunday before we do it. Yeah, go ahead. Hi. Um, I'm friendly. (laughs) That's a first. (laughs) Well, I... um, I've got a thick skin. You know, I I, I don't have... I'm not going to make a moral judgment on what happened. I understand it was a complicated time. But what I would like you to do, if you could, I'm asking you to give us a... 
what was it like in the room when everyone realized what had happened and that somebody screwed up because nobody knew what was going on? Or how much did you know and weren't able to prevent? Like, how did you all respond and... And interviewing individual people was the only answer. I mean, I think that how how did you respond to and what have you set up to prevent this in the future? I mean, like, what was the initial response? Like, let, let me be clear. I was at the White House as a CIA loanee to the White House on 9-11. I was in the, it's like a uh, ornate cake building, right. executive office building. I was evacuated from there. Uh, and I didn't return to the CIA until January of 02. Um, it, but to, um, let me see if I can get close to the answer to your question. I saw two different parallel universes. Um, I mentioned earlier that we had week on, we, there were about six of us every night who would sit around the conference table in the director's office to talk about what was going on around the world mm -hmm. in terms of our fight against Al-Qaeda. These are very tactical conversations that could go, got, go down to, we need to find John Doe in some country and how are we doing? They could be as big as uh, I need to talk to the president tomorrow morning about what our budget is uh, for the next few years. But my point is, we were consumed with chasing down the architects of 9-11. I don't think, and this is a this is a. Did minor, you have a head start? That's what I'm trying to say. Did you have modest, some inkling modest. that this might yes, be happening? Yes, yes, yes. But it took us, I think almost, I mentioned the universal uh, commentary of the people I interviewed. I think pretty much all of them would say we're on our back foot. We had some knowledge, but I think Al-Qaeda had the momentum, I mentioned earlier, until about 04, 05 maybe. I think a minor surprise for us, so you're on a trail saying we have to f chart out the architects of 9-11 and find them, was how quickly, and uh, the Iraq war was a key component of this, the country turned towards saying, what did you do wrong and how do we address the wrongs of 9-11. We were so focused on the mission of preventing another one that I don't think a lot of us were saying what happened before 9-11 and could we have done more to prevent it. I think the 9-11 report is a pretty good piece of government work. Right. But that was a different, we were just fine Jim, John, Mary, Joe. It was intense. Yeah. Um, and it, it was almost like another staff was doing the what happened before and and how do we do better next time? But uh, we had an advantage, but not much. They were beating us early. Thank you. Um, not a friendly question, unfortunately. That's okay. Um, That's okay. But hopefully, civilly president. Thank you. Um, if I understand your thesis correctly, is that 9/11 was an extraordinary event that required an extraordinary response. But as far as I understand the CIA's operation, they have engaged in um, enhanced interrogation probably since its origin in, in, the, in the 1940s. The, for instance, the School of the Americas that has been in existence for decades and the, particip the CIA's participation in enhanced interrogation, through, in, in, in particular in Central America, for decades. This is not something new. This was standard operating procedure. I, I want to address the history of enhanced, enhanced interrogation prior to 9-11. I'm sorry. I, I mean, I'm not going to dodge. I wasn't. There. I mean, I joined in 1985. I'm not in a story. But let me, let me object. In the, the, I'm not objecting your question. Let me challenge you on one point. And it's in an opposite direction of how you think I'm going to challenge you. What happened after 9-11 wasn't required. What we did was not required. 
What we did was, in response to questions from the White House, in response to opinions from the Department of Justice, is to say, the American people said the first one we might forgive, the second one we won't. I think that there was a national will towards saying we're going to use extraordinary measures to try to ensure that they weren't required. It was a national choice to say we're going to be more aggressive than maybe we have been since World War II. I think the lesson, and this came up in an earlier question, is I hope people in leadership positions aren't, aren't 25 or 35 or 45. Until you live in one of those situations, you don't have the capability to step back and say, I've lived there before, maybe we should slow down a bit. And, it, and it's, it's still going on. Guantanamo Bay has not been closed. It's still going on and will be going on. And I think people I think it should listening be closed. to this should, I didn't write about should Guantanamo know. Bay. You have your right to write your book and for people to support you, but people should know that many Americans stand firmly against enhanced interrogation regardless of the circumstances. We don't put, put our humanity on the line. Okay. Thank you. Let me be clear. The book is, if you read it, it's not a defense. It's an explanation. It's an effort to have you live the life. I don't want America to ever do that again. And if I were ever CI director and the president said you're going to do... On. going on about 30 seconds ago. All right. Um, all right. Thanks for it. I think we're, are you shutting yeah. us down? Let me just say real yeah. quick. Sure. This has been a rare opportunity to see a guy who's very thoughtful about things that aren't easy uh, and that may be flat out difficult to talk about, but he gave it a good shot. And I am just uh, so proud that I had the opportunity to, to be the sidekick tonight. Not sure this will ever happen again. I can guarantee it won't. <laughs> <laughs> but this is Philip Mudd, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much, Phil. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next one you won't want to miss. We were being followed and being filmed by someone surreptitiously uh, standing in the uh, hotel lobby with my colleagues standing outside the airport. And so that is unnerving. Target USA talked with CNN chief international correspondent Clarissa Ward about a troubling incident in the Central African Republic as they were on the trail of what's known as Putin's army, the Wagner Group. Three Russian journalists were actually killed uh, while they were working on on a story about Russian mercenary activity in the country. And after being followed and harassed, Ward and her crew knew that this was a serious situation. Our security guys stayed up throughout the night watching the gate of this tiny motel that we were staying in. You know, if they're getting this nervous, then obviously we're hitting a nerve. We explored what they're so sensitive about and the fact that they're actually harassing Americans that aren't even in Russia. Coming up in our next episode, in the meantime, if you have any questions or comments, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. jgreen at wtop.com. Follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you're interested in more national and international security news, sign up for our newsletter, Inside the Skiff, at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. 
Hey, Jordan here. I know a lot of you create your own podcasts, and a lot of you already have one like me. I obviously love what I do. It's taken a lot of hard work to get to this point of success. You shouldn't have to pay fees for platform hosting, distribution, analytics, or fees to create a podcast. You need to be able to focus on producing the best show possible. Now, Podcast One, that's a network I'm on, they have Launchpad Digital Media, or Launchpad DM for short. So it's free, includes unlimited hosting, full control of distribution. You have access to a full dashboard with analytics. Again, totally free. You own everything, by the way. You own your content, you own your subscribers, no tricky stuff there. And you get your own show page on launchpaddm.com for people to listen to and subscribe to your show. It's the only hosting platform brought to you by the leading network, Podcast One. Podcast One will promote the site, drive people to discover your podcast. And if your show grows, you could even be invited to join Podcast One's all-star roster, which includes people like Adam Carolla, Caitlin Bristow, Shaq, Lady Gang, and of course, me, Jordan Harbinger. I'm there too. You also get access to their production and sales support. So with all this completely free, don't use other hosting platforms. Why would you need to? Learn more or sign up now at launchpaddm.com. And don't forget to check out the Jordan Harbinger Show. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.